In today's show, I want to welcome a very, very special guest whose family, I believe, has been in brewing for many, many centuries. And uh, I'm, I was privileged to meet up with Mr. Leupold von Bayern in Munich recently, and he kindly agreed to join me on a podcast where we can talk a little bit about the history of of brewing in, in Europe and in Munich in particular, and maybe a bit about his family business. Welcome, Mr. von Bayern. Well, it's great to be here. <laughs> and we're sitting at the Table Bay Hotel in Cape Town, and um, I'm very glad that you could take some time off on your family vacation to speak to us and talk a little bit about beer. It's always a great thing to talk about. Yeah. In 1994, I worked with Bavaria Brau, and even before I got the job, I saw uh, a little VW um, Golf that was a friend of mine was driving who'd recently started working for Bavaria Brau, and on the side there was a beautiful sign, Kaltenberg. And I was instantly in love with beer. Not that I didn't like beer before, but I was instantly in love with, with this concept of a German beer in South Africa. And that was your brand. That's correct. Um, Quite an early day. A long time ago. Yeah, we, we brewed Kaltenberg, or the Funks brewed Kaltenberg at Bavaria Brau. How did that come? Well, when Bavaria Brau, the idea came up, it was an, an interesting setup. Um, Mr. Funk at that time was representing a German company producing brewing equipment, brew houses, the uh, Hoopman company. Hoopman, yeah. And he was also restoring bottling lines and stuff like that. So he was um, um, working as an engineer to the brewing industry in manufacturing plant. And, and his dream was to have his own brewery. Originally he has been a brewmaster with SAB but he wanted to set up his own brewery and he had the strong belief that starting with a small brewery he would be not a threat to SAB and it would help SAB to have less of a monopoly problem and mm. um, so he would maybe get away with it without being killed being which was normally the business <laughs> if you started a brewery in South Africa yeah. at the time. Well and he had some friends one of them was Mr. August Lenz who was the owner of Hoopman. Okay. He was a shareholder in there Mr. Funk and his family were shareholding. And then there was another distinguished gentleman, Mr. Guido Sandler, who was head of the Oetker Group in Germany yes. today, the largest brewing group in Germany. Okay. And we, as a small company, we were good friends with the Lenz family. And so they said, well, why don't you come along as a typical Bavarian beer yeah. and typical Bavarian brand? So we said, okay, and it could fit. We met with Mr. Funk and we thought it's an, an interesting idea to start production here because I'm a strong believer in fresh beer. I don't believe beer should be shipped over the All equator over the and shaken and aged. And then it comes to the consumer as a pretty old product after yeah. uh, sort of a two months and forcing test, yeah. which is not necessarily the best <laughs> for a beer. Okay, and we, we they brewed a, a, a brand which you don't really do in, in Europe, or do you? The Kaltenberg Royal Lager. Yes, we brew that in Europe. We brew oh, it do? at home, and and we were brewing it in Kaltenberg in our brewery at home in Kaltenberg Castle, and we also at that time in the 90s we were um, one of the largest 
and lager brands in UK on, on the high end okay. and Kaltenberg Pils we sold we were 13% market share in UK at the wow. time we were pretty strong in Sweden at the time and and in and we were just sort of at the point of started we started in I think in 94 we also started in Croatia and we were um, um, very strong on the Adriatic coast. So we had many countries where we started licensed production. Okay. And it was a good moment for us. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the Bavaria Brewery because these, this was before internet and I can't find any proper records. Well, the brewery, um, as I said, Mr. Funk was an engineer. Yeah. And they had, um, whenever they had time and not too many jobs, they started to construct their own brewery. Yeah. And the setup was uh, quite interesting because it was in a very good location between Pretoria and Johannesburg yeah. on the motorway, yeah. just beside the motorway. And they got the job to build um, a brewery f uh, called Vivo for, um, I think it was National Sorkum Breweries That's at the right, time. I remember that. It was a pretty big brewery for about 800,000 hectoliters. Okay. And the Funk family built their brewery absolutely next door to it. Yeah. So and there was quite a lot of logistic advantages in theory. Plus, uh, Mr. Fink installed a pretty good canning line, whereas Vivo was only doing bottled beer. So the, the idea was that they could do canning for Vivo okay. and have their own brewery. Their own brewery was laid out for a total capacity of about 150,000 hectoliter. The brewery was state of the art in '94, yeah. which is um, which is okay today. We are 23 years further, yeah. but at that time it was an, an immaculate brewery, technically very well organized. I think the weak point was that um, they had no experience in distribution and in marketing and yeah. sales, and yeah. um, I think that was their basic weak point, and. Um, they tried hard. I think we had quite a number of very nice restaurants mm. which sold our beers at the time, but it was mainly personal friends of Mr. Funk. Yeah. Whereas if it went to going to third parties, to independent companies, they had difficulties to get in. And, and so it, it didn't work out the way as they expected. Yeah. But um, the beers were good. Nothing wrong with the beers. It was just um, it was just a lack of maybe financial muscle in marketing and sales yeah. and experience. Okay. And um, and there was a pipe, wasn't there, connecting Viva and, and Bavaria Brown? That was to obviously yes, uh, there was a there was a pipeline for um, to get for to the, the filling line. of cans. Okay. And that was a that was a connection there. Yeah. Besides that, the companies were totally independent uh, of each other. Yeah. Okay. But the financial income. And the business plan was that the um, canning for Vivo would contribute a certain amount. And now, the Vivo side failed completely. Never got because, off. Because um, in spite of a great brewery, they, ha they relied that whenever they would start the brewery, their community would jump on the first non-SAB large-scale um, lager beer produced by National Sorkum. Yeah. And mm. that didn't work. Uh, didn't. The people, and uh, when it comes to drinking, they go to something they believe in. Yeah. And they had probably some distrust, which was probably wrong, but that's what it was. Yeah. And there was no real support on the sales force, because okay. the sales force at that time was not, it was unexperienced people, and they were not trained to do that. 
And so the listings they got at the beginning couldn't be maintained because they just never visited their customers. Yeah. And um, so you, going back to, to your business, I read some an article this week that you've, your family's been brewing for 750 years. Is that That's correct. Uh, my um, beer in Bavaria is um, very closely linked. Our family was ruling the country since 1180 onwards, 1180. which is the longest <laughs> ruling in Europe. Yeah. And, and, but beside that, we had breweries in the family since 1260. Okay. And some of them quite small because it was mainly when you had a royal residence, it was important to have surf supply. Yeah. So you had your own brewery. Okay. But then it became a commercial issue. And, and later we had many breweries in the family over the centuries. Okay. And the um, probably most known connection to the brewing industry is that we basically set the definition of beer mm. by issuing the famous German purity law. Now, the purity law, which is the oldest food control law, which is still valid today, it said beer is made out of barley, hops and water. Nothing yeah. else. Yeah. That clearly defined the product beer. Before that, there was no definition. And I think this is very valuable because it, it, beer is not just an alcoholic bubbling beverage. It is a clearly defined product where people have a great um, respect and, and, well, and also confidence. And, and I think this was what the purity law really meant, that it made people confident that they were getting a fair product for their money. Mm. And that was very valid in that time, in, 15, in, for, in 1516. Mm -hmm. And we celebrated the anniversary of this purity law um, this uh, last, last year, year yeah. 500 years purity law. But it also, besides defining the product, it saved people from being poisoned because people were using all kinds of poisonous spices to make the beer cheaper or to make it um, taste different yeah. and so by banning that and restricting to hops people had to work much harder to make an excellent drink but if you are um, and more focused you end up getting a better product and I think that's what happened to beer and that's why I think we really defined beer as a product of the family okay, we had many other connections in the following centuries yeah I mean, that's quite a big contribution, I think, that for the industry. I mean, nowadays people obviously, especially in Belgium and, and uh, the new craft industry has obviously got some other ideas, but... Well, I think the other ideas, is nothing wrong with them, yeah. provided they, um, you know, I have no problem, whatever the people are brewing, provided they call it brew and not beer. <laughs> um, the key thing is, you shouldn't frustrate a consumer by giving him something which is not a beer. Yeah. If you ask for a wine, I think in South Africa you're sensible to that, wine is a drink out of grapes. Yeah. Now you can perfectly well make a wine out of glycol, alcohol, color, and water, yeah. and some, some chemicals. Yeah. It will look like a wine, it will taste like a wine, but it is not a wine. Yeah. And I think it's very much the same with a beer. So if they come up with using different ingredients and putting different spices in, it might be a nice bubbling alcoholic beverage and it might be a very interesting brew. Certainly it's not a beer. Yeah. That's definitely my opinion. <laughs> and I think I'm not the only one. Yeah. But I think some people may need to think a bit deeper into what they are doing to the product which is so much loved by many people. 
if they are using the goodwill for products which are different. Mm. And and your your own business is that you your brewery is called Carlsenberg. Yes, uh, we have a we have a, um, four breweries in Bavaria. Okay, where we are produ where we have production, and it's um, the our sort of the mother house is Kaltenberg Castle, a castle with a brewery inside, two floors, two cellars under, and a great place to have a, a beer. But it's a, it has a fully commercial brewery in it. We still do about hundred thousand hectoliters per annum in the castle okay. itself, but we have a more modern brewery. And about 20 miles from there with modern bottling lines and on. And then due to logistics, we have two other locations with production in the and one in the south of Bavaria and one a bit more in the west. Okay. And uh, Fürstenfeld Brook, I think that's... That's halfway from Kaltenberg to Munich. That's where we do our logistics and bottling. Ah, okay. Because that's what, you know, I think in, in about 10, 15 years ago, I was in Germany and I wanted to visit something. Yes. And uh, that's where I ended up, in yes. the beer garden. Um The beer garden culture in, in Munich, somebody said to me it was purely a, a business idea where the brewers had to get sell as much beer as they could. Well, you know, and the, uh, the brewers formerly had planted trees with big leaves, mainly uh, chestnut trees, onto their beer cellars to keep them more cool in summer. Okay. And so people, you know, wanted to drink the beer fresh at the location. That was a big competition to the local... Um, and restaurants to yeah. all the existing and restaurant gastronomy, so they were dead against it. So it finally took um, law, which was made by my four times great grandfather, <laughs> by King Max the First of Bavaria, and he made a law that the brewers were allowed to sell beer above their beer garden in those um, places. Under provided the trees. people could bring their own food. Oh, okay. And they ma he made a law that provided they bring their own food, they're not in competition with the uh, with normal restaurant, then they can sell beer. And this tradition became extremely popular. Yeah. So today we house some of the world's largest beer gardens. And one beer garden in Munich, um, which is still connected with our family, and has um, 8,000 seats, the Royal Hirschgarten near Nymphenburg. Okay. And on a good day, I remember uh, a few years ago we had the final of the Champions League where Bayern München lost but uh, in its hometown, but they drank more than 30,000 liters of beer in the one <laughs> beer garden that one night. Yeah. And I think some restaurants would be very happy if they would sell that in a year. In a year, yes. <laughs> And then your family is also connected uh, these, with with the whole uh, Oktoberfest. Well, the Oktoberfest is a very different story. The Oktoberfest was first um, in 1806, uh, 1810, yeah. and 1810, sorry. And um, the Oktoberfest was at that time, and that was a very difficult political time when the country Bavaria was re. Organized, we and after the Napoleonic Wars in the middle, and Bavaria gained two substantial additional pieces: the North Bavarian part, Franconia, and the Western part, and Swabia, which became part of the state of Bavaria. And so, it was quite important to manage to integrate those old countries, which were very long on our border and very often enemies. So um, it was important to integrate, and one of the grand ideas was that in 1810, when the later King Ludwig I got married, 
they made a big, big wedding event, which was mainly a horse race in the center of Munich on a, on a big open field. Yeah. And, and in line with this horse race um, at the occasion of the wedding, they, there was you know, a bit of catering and on. And that was so successful that they repeated it as a national festival and it became what is today Oktoberfest. Okay. The addition um, after the first one was an agricultural exhibition and um, a shooting contest. So it included the shooting clubs in Bavaria was always very traditional and very important. And the other thing, the um, um, agricultural side, the big agricultural national exhibition, draw the people from all over the country. In later time, when we had the first train, the people got free rides from all parts of Bavaria to go to this festival. And it became um, a huge national festival. And later on today, it's the world's biggest beer festival. Because obviously, where you have many people, you would have entertainment, you would yeah. have beer tents, you would have street entertainment, shows, and it, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And today, it has roughly six and a half million visitors, and they drink about 70 million liters of beer. So it's, it is quite a successful yeah. adventure. And the, the few people that I encountered at this year's Oktoberfest, I mean, I can see it's really part of, of the Munich lifestyle and the Bavarians, but I think the, the people from outside of Munich don't. I mean, they don't really embrace it. We, the locals, really embrace it, and and I believe you also attended. So it, there's lots of history and. Well, you know, the guests from outside <laughs> see Oktoberfest as a big carnival. So what you see now is around Oktoberfest, yeah. everywhere there's closing shops, uh, and okay. some smart closing companies got reduced. If you want, heavily reduced Bavarian traditional dresses. <laughs> with um, skirts for the girls, which are a little bit too narrow and maybe yeah. the sh um, they're a little bit too short, but they're made in China yeah. and they're selling at cheap price all around Oktoberfest. So suddenly you see six million guests running around in pseudo-Bavarian dresses yeah. as a carnival, if you want, okay. combined with a lot of drinking and, and yeah. partying. But it's, it's still, it works. Yeah, but still, I mean, the, 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 the local people still embrace it. Yes, certainly. But it's, it's, it was overrun for a while. I think it's got a bit better the last yeah. year. I think we, it was not quite as crowded. Okay. And, and so because there's a limit, you know, there's a certain amount of people you can let on a space. And mm. if it's too many, the locals don't get a place in a beer tent. Yeah. And if you have to wait for two hours to get into a tent, it stops being fun. It's, it's, yeah. And if you, I mean, if you're not a tourist, then... It certainly it's yes. it becomes a hassle. So is there <coughs> is there a place where where the VIPs can hang out? I mean, and well, you know, um, in not really. What um, there's in Oktoberfest, you have about a dozen big tents, which yeah. are up to eight thousand seats. Yeah, and <laughs> then there is another twenty twenty five smaller okay. places for food and entertainment, which are. Um, quite different in style yeah. and um, there is no real VIP place but each of those tents will take reservations normally heavily overpriced yeah. and sold out a year in advance and uh, so you know it depends you know uh, those tents would be run by a local restaurant or pub owner and so they will have their regular guests, their, regu their best friends, who are, so to say, the VIP. Okay. And um, true VIP place or tent is not existing. But okay. as I said, each one will have its 
own friends and yeah. and local VIPs in their tents. Yeah. So if you go, where where do you end up going? For me, it's pretty simple because since I know all the brewers, all I need to do is um, give them a call, and and I will have a place in there. Yeah. But it's um, because I will go to the, you know they normally have a seating place for the for the regular guests or something yeah. or for the okay. customer, and so that will be always a place where I can jam in if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But I must say I don't go too many times. Yes, yeah, so okay, and let's go back to your brands. Um, you say you've got four. Four breweries. When when I met you at the at the drink tech, I went for a walk, and the closest shopping center I can't remember the name. I saw that there was a Kaltenberg. Yes, restaurant. we have a very nice we have a very nice restaurant, <laughs> a concept <laughs> restaurant, on which we have in a few places in the world. Okay, and, and trading under King Ludwig, König Ludwig, and the Messe, the one near the yes. fair in Munich. And it's a very. This was a test place. We did one in America some years ago. We have a big King Ludwig's Castle in Shanghai. We have a very nice one in Paris. Okay. And so it's a um, basically based on the, on King Ludwig's uh, the second, the one who did the famous fairy tale castle on his story. We did a restaurant concept, and we're rolling that out in other places at the okay. moment. I think my brother was in St. Anton's. Could that be now? What is there was some ski resort in America where you uh, went in to. Well. In Vail in Colorado. Vail, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think he's, he came back with very proudly with a Kaltenberg yes. souvenir for me. That was a temporary thing. We did okay. that. And that was a, in one of the more renowned ski places yeah. in America. And uh, they had a cable car station which was, um, well, um, had stopped being in use. And they planned to remodel that whole village center and they said okay this place is free for a certain time yeah. and so we took it to test some beers and we made a restaurant in there but the concept was great but it and we did it with theater stage material so it looked great but it was actually everything we could put up and dismantle okay. and we dismantled it and the brewery is now in Estonia and the and, and which we had in there and the interiors we used for other places later okay so we had it for, I think, seven years. But when we okay. opened it, they guaranteed us two years and said, maybe you're lucky and it's longer. And we ended up having seven years. So it was quite okay. But we used it because in a ski resort, we were, we were testing brands. Mm. And if you're in a, in a place like that, you have different guests every week. So if you make subtle changes, you can do it without regulars noticing. Okay. And so you can see, it, are you doing better and like this or in other ways or how do you approach a brand we wanted we used this as a toolbox to test American consumers okay and are you available in America now? Uh, we are available there but we didn't concentrate on America okay. we believe I think there's better options in other countries because uh, an American distribution is extremely complex due to the three-tier system yeah. where breweries are not allowed to tie a pub or not allowed to, well, um, you, there's, there's very limited things you can actually do to ensure long-term um, um, business in any restaurant. So yeah. you might be in there and next day you're out and the waiter can basically decide what he's serving to his guests and okay. you as a supplier, you have a very hard time. So if you don't, um, and the other thing is the distributors in the United States are always very, very strongly controlled by the two major 
brewing groups. Mm. If you're not a member of any of those two, there's very little you can do because the level of attention the distributor would give to you when he's basically a bud or, um, or um, an curse distributor mm. is minute. Mm. Okay. <coughs> and the opportunities in, in places like China and, and East? We are present in most Eastern European countries. Yeah. We are in, in, on, on the um, Balkans, we are in Russia, we are in, um, in, in Asia, um, in India, China, Mongolia, okay. Indonesia. Wow. With production locally in each of those countries. And, okay, all last So currently production. we're in about 15 countries in the production. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I would love to see... As you know, we believe strongly that beer should be fresh. Yeah. And fresh, and I'd rather export Bavarian brewmasters, raw materials, yeast, hops. Yeah. I would rather export Bavarian machinery if needed. Or um, if, you know, if some people have decent equipment, then we can send our brewmasters and we can reproduce our beer one-to-one -one basically in any country. Yeah. It needs some skill, it needs some very hard control, but if you do it, it is actually much better. Yeah, I always find that, I mean, vice beer in South Africa, that locally brewed vice beer, I don't know if they don't have access to the same raw materials, but it certainly doesn't taste the same as, as in well, Germany. Vice beer is something which is uh, needing quite a lot of specific know-how. Yeah. And there's different flavor ideas, and um, I would be perfectly happy producing vice beer here at identical quality. Okay. We've done it in Mongolia, we've done it in China, and, and why shouldn't we be able to do it here? <laughs> But it's something which um, obviously you need to do that. If you ever want to do that, uh, you need to be very careful whom you do it with. Yeah. Uh, that, is it the right partner? And if you do find the right partner, we probably might do it. Yeah. But at the moment, And we are, um, as I said, we, are, we have focused a lot into Asia at the moment. Yeah. And um, that's good. And But I must say, I love South Africa. It's a great place. And it has changed a lot in the last 25 years. Yes. When we first came here, it was very different. There was no microbreweries. Nothing. And it was just the sort of the start of the first ones to take a look. And um, I think the, the market has developed a lot since. There are a lot more opportunities. And there's certainly a lot more, um, when you come here, I'm here on holiday at the moment, but you know, I, op I always walk around with open eyes. Yeah, of course. And who knows what will come out of it. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see, yeah, okay. Um, I just want to, <coughs> just in, in, maybe in closing, tell us a little bit about your marketing, because you, you had some, you've got, I mean, it's not easy to market a beer in Europe. You've been, with your brand, has been around for many years. But you've got some different ideas. I think you had some big festivals yourself. Uh, we do big festivals, sure. But, you know, if you look at the home market, it's important to be known. It's important for people. For a beer, it's important to have a home. Yeah. And having in Kaltenberg Castle a very nice traditional brewery with restaurants, with beer garden, well, to do some entertainment. We, have an, we built an arena over the years, which now seats about 13,000 people. And we do the world's largest medieval tournament with lancers yeah. and stuntmen on. Okay. That's always on in July. And Kaltenberger Ritter Turnier, it's um, world famous by now. And But we do also other things. Since we have the arena, we do quite a lot of concerts and other um, or Christmas markets or whatever. Yeah. So we have lots of um, big events. We get a lot of people there for those. But um, in marketing, at the end of the day, 
I think we have good beer. We have um, Ponto Selmetil, which is designed for our beer um, in, um, in many respects. And we have also some quite nice classical marketing campaigns. Mm. But the key thing is, you know, what people are looking for today is, um, is things true content. Mm. Is it fake or is it invented or is it true? Is it, yeah. And I believe there is no other beer brand which has a similar story yeah. with 750 years of history in beer, with um, very groundbreaking um, um, knowledge in the beer industry, with things which we really created, and last not least, which is you know, um, run by a royal family. So yeah. here the kings make beer for the folks. <laughs> it's not the folks making beer for the king. And I think that's important. We try to make beer which is fit for a king, which is good enough for a king, yeah. brewed by a royal family. And okay. I think this is unique and very difficult to, to uh, copy. Um, I think at the moment there might be another royal brewery coming up, I think, in uh, something like a royal brewery in Samoa. And uh, yes... Where is that? Yeah, in Samoa, on the island Samoa in the Pacific. Okay. And, um, but um, there used to be a Royal Brewery, it's no longer there in Nepal. And, but beside that, yeah, Nothing. well, I think we are more or less thinking. And there's one, and yes, well, um, the last two years, I think, or three years ago, Prince Charles in England started his own beer. And he got a, um, in, he's got this brand range, Dutchies. Yeah. And he's got a, a brand which is produced for him by one of the um, breweries in England. Okay. As a matter of fact, we have licensed production in the very same brewery, oh, really? which is a fun. Which is fun. Okay. And we are both members of the um, Brewers Guild in England. Okay. <laughs> there was one more. <coughs> um, what, what I mean. I was surprised to see that even though you, I mean, you've got so much heritage, you're not scared to go and sit amongst the people at uh, at Bevtech or at Brewtech, Drinktech. No, because you, you I think any there? business, any business to a certain extent is human. Yeah. And I think it's important that you know your customers, you know yeah. your friends, your, 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 you know your, and with us it's more partners, it's not yeah. true customers. It's if we do, if we operate with license, partners and they are our partners and it's good to meet and so mm. I think in, in big events of the brewing industry it's quite nice to be personally present and to learn what's going on, to see what's going on and to stay um, up to date. Yeah and stay in touch and I saw a long, it seemed like a, a long queue of especially from, from the Asian countries that were very interested in. in well as I said we have many um, partners already mm. in Asia and therefore there is um, always an increasing amount of people <laughs> from there who show up with us. Yeah, and just in terms of giving a message to the South Africans, especially for them to experience something like the drink tech or, or the, the, the education part that's offered by by. Well, I Munich. think, you know, I think that's one thing which is extremely important. I think brewing, and I think that's if there's one critic on the on the craft brewing industry. Mm. Brewing is a science. We have universities with a five years engineering degree to become an, a brewing 
a brewmaster with diploma. Yeah. Uh, it's now it's a master study or diploma study and a PhD study. Yeah. Beside that, we have the craftsman um, education, which is typically German, the yeah. dual system, where you can also become a brewmaster by going into a brewery as a trainee at the age of 15 or 16. You do a three years training course as an apprentice in a brewery. Yeah. After three years of apprentice, uh, where you get school training parallel, you then go into, uh, you can normally, you would, you would work in a brewery as a qualified worker for another two or three years. And then you would do um, a master's course, which is a two-year course at the Brewer's School. Uh, we have two major Brewer's Schools in Bavaria, and the famous Dömens Academy, or the Brewer's School in Ulm. And they give you a two-year hardcore training, hands-on brewing, where you end up as a master brewer. Now, this is a big difference if you have someone who had five years uh, five years training and two or three years business ex and training beside. But when you do the, brewers, the master brewer school, you're always working at the brewer parallel. So those people are real professionals. Mm. They, they learn and they're educated how beer is made with all consequences. Mm -hmm. Now, what you see today is many craft brewers who look into internet mm. and have some recipes and then they say, we want to reinvent beer, we know much better. Now, if five years training is worth nothing and a four weeks course on internet is making you a master brewery, we are doing something wrong in Bavaria or in <laughs> Germany. And I believe we are not quite wrong. Yeah. So I think um, um, if there's one thing, I think the people who should want to start a brewery as a brewmaster, they should really undergo a serious serious training because they risk a lot if they make a mistake and the beer doesn't taste the company can be bust yeah and there's a lot of investment behind it there's a lot of responsibility behind it so i believe it's not enough just to have a ponytail and shorts and start <laughs> brewing and a beer. i think it's important to go through a significant solid training to do it and then i think the the chances of success is much higher yeah And it's better to spend that time in advance. Or if you're a businessman and you say, okay, I want to become a craft brewer as a businessman because I love beer and I'm a discriminating beer drinker, nothing wrong with that. Then they should go out on the market and look for someone who has a master brewing degree from a renovated uh, um, uh, brewing school from Dömens, from Weinstefan, from VLB in Berlin or from... Also, they have some pretty good brewing schools in England. Yeah. Um, so, if you did that, I think that's okay. But just coming with a um, two or three months degree isn't enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And then, just in closing, I mean, we're sitting in this beautiful city, and I mean, it would be, I think, it would be very nice for you to have uh, your your brand or a little brewery here in in, in the Cape. Is there? Well, it's a, certainly a great place, and um, I think um, having um, having our beer here would be certainly something um, of interest. And um, wait and see. Maybe we know more about that in a year's time. Okay. But I have to, um, you know, I just came this time as a tourist. <laughs> I've seen what has happened yeah. in the last couple of years, and and with a little bit of thinking I might come up with ideas and if yes. the ideas get a bit bigger then we'll come back to you. Very good. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much too. Okay.